Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning, as we should whenever we study Holy Scripture. May the Holy Spirit be with us in enlightenment and help us to kind of set aside preconceived notions or things that we may have learned uh, in previous days and open our minds and our hearts to look at things in a new way. So we ask your blessing on our efforts and we just give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. So many, it's so good to see so many here and a few new faces, which I appreciate. Welcome to you all. Uh, I see that I didn't scare too many away last week. We, uh, we covered a lot of, uh, detail and I find that it is really necessary to get through some of this detail before we get into the, the more enjoyable parts, let's say, of this subject. Uh, it so happens that uh, how many of you have seen this magazine from National Geographic, this very interesting article on Mary? Uh, I just read this, and it's a beautiful article explaining the various phenomena of Mary and the devotions, etc. But the one thing that I found missing was it didn't explain why. There's no theological or biblical explanation for Mary's, for our devotion to Mary. And as we said last week, and even Scott Hahn, in his book, from which this whole session is taken, uh, mentions that people have a, a great devotion to Mary, but really they do not have uh, a sound biblical or theological reason for why. And that is what I'm trying to give you, is the background as to why Mary is so important, not only in our lives, but in faith, in the church, etc. And it's unfortunate, excuse me, uh, this is December, I don't Yes. So that's what I'm trying to do, is to give you the background so that you have an understanding of why. Okay. Now, last week we covered in some detail, you might say, uh, God's creation. Why did he create? And, excuse me, a um, little cold here, but that's the way it, uh, things I'm sorry, we covered uh, God's creation in, in fair amount of detail. Then we did, went into the fall of mankind. And then we went into some brief explanation of God's plan of creation. And who was the lady that asked me if I could sum up God's plan of creation in one uh, sentence? Uh, anyone? Come on. She's probably afraid to raise her hand. No? All right. Well, 
in your handout today, or one of the handouts, and I hope you got it. I tried to do that because after I left here, uh, I was thinking about that, and I was concerned that perhaps we need a little bit more than just some verbiage up here. So I tried to do this, and you know, I spent all day, the following day, trying to put it into one sentence, and I couldn't do that. So the best I could do was this, all right? Let's go through this, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit about it. God's plan of creation and salvation, everything that God does, has done, will do, is connected with this plan of salvation. So it said, God in his infinite wisdom, love, and mercy devised a plan to permit mankind to act with him after mankind's sin. Remember, God is divine, perfectly divine, perfectly pure. And divine purity and sinful mankind cannot coexist. But God his infinite mercy and love, the love wants to overcome this idea of mankind and his sin, and so this plan was devised. The ultimate objective of this plan was a way for mankind to eventually reach heaven and be reunited with his creator after his time on earth was completed. So, that in sort of one sentence or two sentences uh, sums it up. But let's go on. This plan began with a covenant made first with Abraham and renewed down through the ages with other leaders of the Jewish nation. It took the form of a family, a community, a nation. That is, Abraham's family which grew into a large community, particularly in Egypt, and then into a nation after return from Egypt to uh, Israel. The nation that would live according to the teachings that were handed down from God through their leaders, priests, prophets, and others, and would evolve into a model, loving community that would be a light to the nations. In other words, this community would be the vehicle through whom God would speak to all mankind. Unfortunately, the Jewish people didn't particularly find any interest in that and thought because they were the chosen people, they were so exclusive that they closed themselves up into an exclusive community. God worked with these, I'm sorry, God worked uh, with and through these leaders of the Jewish nation for 2,000 years. And that's what the Old Testament is trying to tell you. And from their own writings, we have learned that they were very disobedient. Much was accomplished 
But the primary objective, that is, of being a model community, was of no interest to the Jewish leaders. Although the Jewish people offered many sacrifices and oblations to God, none was sufficient to take away sin or remove the barrier that developed between God and mankind by sin. And therefore, God had to give mankind some way, something to be offered that would satisfy and resolve this breach between them. This gift was God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, who in becoming man took upon himself the sins of all mankind for all time to the cross as a living and yet divine offering, which was then sufficient to resolve the sins of all humanity and open a path to eventually be reunited with the Father. This act of self-giving is the sign of a new covenant, the new and eternal covenant that is offered freely to mankind and is celebrated daily in the Holy Mass of the Catholic Church. In acceptance of this covenant, Acceptance assures eternal life with God. Its rejection, unfortunately, results in eternal damnation. Can we be any clearer than that? I tried. All right. Oh, okay. Gold star on my forehead. All right. All right. Now, in this article, there is a lot of detail missing. And again, that's what I am trying to give you. So, today we're going to talk about God's need for partners. Now, I'm using the word need, but as we've talked before, God... <coughs> really has no needs, he could have done it in any other way. But for any of you who are supervisors of other people in your work, or have been in the past, and you've tried to implement something, particularly something new, you probably found it a lot easier if you encouraged or asked the participants to help you devise the plan and to implement it. And that is what God is doing. Because this whole plan was for mankind's benefit, God enlisted several important people (coughs) to join him in implementing this plan. So it starts with Abraham. And if you've read the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, you found that God chose this man because he was the probably the only one or one of very few people who believed in one true God 
who created all things. Very important and something that was unusual at that period of time. And he enjoined his family. So one of the things that Abraham and his wife Sarah, or prior to this time, it was Abram and Sarai, One of the problems that existed between them was they could not have children, all right? Because they were advanced age, and it was beyond their dreams, really, to have children, but that didn't stop their wanting, their need, their anxiety over the fact that they couldn't have children and didn't, all right? So God took this whole idea and answered their prayers by promising them a child. And we get the little story where Sarai hears this, you know, and she starts laughing. Yeah, she said, at 75 years old, I'm going to have a child. Uh, anyways, but you see, there again, it's important to take the whole idea of God being able to do anything. And he worked this great miracle of giving them a child in spite of their advanced age. And that was one of the signs. He also made a covenant with them, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But it's the whole idea of wanting Abraham to have this child through his wife and develop a family that would be the nucleus of his plan and this community and this nation that he was trying to build. We have other people along the lines. Moses. Moses was another person that God chose as a partner. Moses was an unusual person uh, character, you might say, at his particular time, because he was a Jew, born of a Jewish, from a Jewish family, but raised as if he were the son of the daughter of the Pharaoh. And you all know the story, obviously you've seen Charlton Heston in the movie, you know, and uh, so you all, I'm sure, know that scene. But Moses was very important because being a Jew, he could go back to his own people and talk to them about being released from Egypt. So he was a key partner for God in that aspect of the plan of salvation, to move it forward. Remember, the Jewish people had been in Egypt for three or four hundred years. We're not exactly sure, but we know it was quite a number of years. And it was time now for them to move back to the promised land. And so God needed an important leader. And Moses was that person because he was well-educated. He was a Jew, but he was educated in the Pharaoh's family. 
and there were connections there. You know, he did a lot of networking, as they call it today, and knew both sides. So, interestingly enough, in that particular area, when Moses had confronted the burning bush, you know the story, I'm sure, he is out tending sheep for his uh, brother-in-law, and he sees this bush burning, and yet, in spite of it being burning, it didn't burn up, you know, or be consumed. So he goes over to find out, how can this be? And as he approaches, God, in the burning bush, says, Moses, stop, you're on holy ground. And this is when Moses, uh, God actually connects with Moses and gives him this particular job. And in the process, Moses says, well, all right, Lord, if you want me to go back to Pharaoh, but if I do and I go back to my own people, they don't like me because, uh, you know, I killed one of them. I killed one of the Egyptians, so I'm sort of a wanted man. God says, never mind, I'll take care of you. And then Moses, you know, again, reluctantly says, well, Lord, uh, if I don't go back to my own people, they're not going to listen to me. Who should I say sent me? This is when God gives him the idea of a name. And name in Jewish culture was extremely important. You didn't give a name out to just anybody. You didn't walk into a, a crowd like this and put a little tag on your uh, your shoulder saying, my name is Joe or Pete or whatever. Uh, you didn't do that in those days. Name was something that was part of your, not only your identity, but part of your actual being. All right. So God says to Moses, tell your people that I am sending you. And translated, this is where we get the, the word Yahweh. All right. So it's important that you kind of remember that. But that is a key partner. I want to get through this idea of partnership uh, because we want to go on to other things and then if you're all good, I'll show you a movie. <laughs> no popcorn. All right. King David. King David is another key partner. The Jewish people, after they had come back from Egypt and had been in the promised land for several hundred years, four or five hundred years, uh, wanted to be like the other nations around them. You know, they wouldn't go out and, and be a light to the nations as they were supposed to, but they wanted to imitate a lot of the nations around them. And they wanted a king. Up till this time, they were led by various judges and certain prominent priests, such as Samuel. They wanted a king. And... Samuel and Nathan and a few others said, no, you don't need a king. God is your king. No, no, they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king. 
So after a lot of praying, uh, it was first Saul that was uh, given them as a king. Not Saul of Tarsus, which became St. Paul, but another Saul. And he didn't work out too well, okay? Started out okay, but he uh, got carried away with his own importance. So that didn't work out. So David was then the king, and he was uh, selected and chosen by God himself and was elected uh, king and united all of the tribes uh, that had been, you know, part of Israel for a number of years. And he was the epitome, you might say, of the human ruler and did a great deal for the Jewish people. And he was always looked upon as being the person that the Jewish people had in mind as being the ruler because no one after him was as good or as great as David. Then we had uh, a whole list of prophets. <coughs> Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and down through the ages there were 15 literary prophets and a few other, uh, such as uh, Elijah and Elisha, who did not leave any uh, written documents uh, or writings. But the 15 literary prophets we have in our book. And they all give us uh, pretty much the same story, how the Jewish people did not live up to what God wanted of them. And God didn't want anything uh, extraordinarily or unusual of any kind. He wanted them to be a model community. And they just went off and kind of did their own thing. So the prophets were very important in trying to get these people to see the light. And almost every one of them were executed by their own people because they didn't like what the prophets had to say. But nevertheless, the prophets were important partners of God in furthering this plan of salvation. (coughs) And then even in the New Testament, you have a lot of key partners or people who help in furthering God's plan of salvation. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was very important because he fulfilled, you might say, a myth in of the old Jewish uh, culture. And that myth developed from the fact that the one of the prophets, uh, the non-literary prophets, Elijah, was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot and all of that. And that developed into sort of a legend or a myth that Elijah had to return before the coming of the Messiah. And as Christ tells us in the Gospels, that John the Baptist sort of fulfilled that myth or that legend. Uh, And we learn that really from studying uh, the Gospels regarding John the Baptist. Then you had all of the apostles. They were key people. 
But last and most important, you had Mary. Mary, the most important woman in the entire gospel or the entire Bible, you might say. And as it says here, Mary, the most powerful woman in the world of all time. And that is why we are studying, and that is the essence of this entire uh, session of lessons or class meetings here, is on Mary as to why. Why is she so important? And as I said earlier, many people have a strong devotion to Mary, but can't explain why. And that is what I am trying to give you. Now, it takes a little bit of time, and it takes a little bit of investigating on your part, and unfortunately, uh, some of the references that I gave you last week for reading had a couple errors in it. I was going to fire the typist, but... That was a little difficult to do, you know. (laughs) What I want to do, really, is to give you this background, and then we will get into some of the uh, more important aspects of Mary. And it will eventually cover things like the Immaculate Conception. We'll get into that next week, because that is a very key point in studying uh, Mary, the Immaculate Conception. And then later on we will get into the Assumption and then Apparitions and then there is a whole DVD on the Miraculous Medal of Mary and her influence uh, not only on Christ during his lifetime but on the church in general. For example, one of the great battles that were was fought back in the 12th or 13th century, uh, the Battle of Raponta, and I'll get some more details on that later. Uh, the success of that battle was attributed to Mary and praying the rosary to her for her intercession. So you have a number of things of that kind. Uh, this book also gives a sort of a a depiction of Mary's apparitions over a period of time and um, well, I can't find it offhand. It's always when you want something you can't find it, but well, anyways, it, it talks about the number of apparitions uh, over a period of time and I was surprised because I didn't realize there were that many. I have been to Lourdes and to Fatima, um, and it's a great experience. When you step into the little town of Lourdes, it's not very big, not probably even as big as Roseville here, uh, you get the feeling automatically that there is something special here. Uh, and in spite of the fact that when I was there for three or four days, it rained almost every day, that didn't seem to bother anybody. 
the feeling of Mary's presence was there. Uh, Fatima, not quite as much. But Lourdes was really something special. Okay. I want to go on to the idea. Yes, Rita? Yes. That is correct, yes. Yes, what Arita is saying that uh, a friend of hers and, and uh, there are a lot of people who feel that the Catholic Church goes overboard by worshiping Mary. We do not worship Mary. She is a human being or was a human being. She is not a goddess. We do not worship her. But we give her high regard and affection, reverence, etc. because, 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 and this is what I will be getting into, is all of these reasons of why we revere Mary. Okay. She was the most important person of all of these partners that God chose. Well, I have a close friend, Joan Donahue, and she says Mary's a martyr. Well, perhaps... Is that just in her own way? That's in her own way, yes. She's not a martyr in the way we normally think of martyrs who died uh, for their faith. No. In fact, the whole idea of Mary not dying in the way we do is part of an explanation of the Immaculate Conception and its... uh, more distant effects, okay, which we will get into a little later. Uh, Mike, do you have a question? The middle of the year, the 19th yeah. century, yes. So do you believe that it isn't because she just appeared at that time Yes. In a sense, she's still there. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mike's qu- question was: In my feelings of the presence of Mary in Lourdes, uh, is that a tribute to the fact that she is still there? Uh, I think she governs that particular uh, little town and the things that go on there because every single night, whether it's rain or shine, uh, there is a candlelight procession uh, from the grotto to the cathedral uh, and everybody sings the the same uh, song, Ave Maria. Okay. no, no, not that, uh, not, not Guno's Alve Maria, but, uh, one of, one of those songs, okay. All right. Um, but it's, it, if you're in that procession, as I was, it's a tremendous feeling. Everybody is joining together with the same thought of honoring Mary, not worshiping her, 
but honoring her. And obviously, she is blessing the entire community for doing so. And that is what you feel. It's amazing. Really amazing. Yes? Last October. says that he was there, you know, last October uh, and had the same feeling. I was there like 30 years ago. It hasn't changed. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's amazing. Let's go on. The idea of covenant. Going back to the story of Abraham. God asked Abraham to pick up his entire family and his flocks and uh, servants and so forth and so on and move from the land of Ur to Palestine or Israel. And, you know, that would be quite a move in those days. It would be quite a move even in today's time. All right? Because it's quite a distance. And, of course, there were... There were no trains or planes or whatever, and it was all on foot. So that was a great undertaking. So Abraham sort of wanted to, you know, some reassurance or whatever. And God gives him a covenant. Now, a covenant is more than a contract. A covenant is giving part of yourself. And the other party to whom you have given the covenant gives a part of him or herself. This is the same as in a marriage. A marriage of two people, a husband and wife, or a man and woman, I should say, who gives themselves in marriage, gives themselves as a covenant to each other. They become two in one flesh. That is the importance of a covenant and the difference between a covenant and a contract. And in addition to that, a covenant is more like a family. And the word family is extremely important. I Last night I was going through some research and I found this paragraph here which goes back to the time of Abraham and the book of Genesis. It says, try thinking about the structure of the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, which the Jewish people call the law. All right. It says, basically, it looks like a plan within a plan. The plan begins in Genesis with God creating a good world so so humanity can come to know and share in God's goodness. When humanity fails to live up to God's hopes, God chooses a family, Abraham's family. 
that will be God's special means of revealing the divine goodness to all nations. <coughs> Excuse me. The people will discover God's goodness through hardship, slavery, deliverance, that is Exodus, and learn to be an obedient and holy people. Then God will lead them to a promised land, which they will keep only if they remain obedient and loyal. That's shown in the book of Deuteronomy. The diagram of, well, gives a little diagram on the next page. (coughs) So in talking about covenant, you automatically talk about family. And we will see this throughout uh, these sessions here, where family is extremely important uh, (coughs) to God as part of his creation. Now, you get the idea of what covenant is all about. God made this covenant with Abraham, but then he renewed that covenant down through the ages with Moses and David and through the prophets to the Jewish people in general. And they took the idea of covenant very serious, but again, that added to their concept, their understanding of why they were the chosen people. And they felt that God just chose them to shower his love on them, and that's where it ends. And anybody outside of the Jewish community, uh, the Jewish family, uh, was excluded. And God said, no, that is not what it is. We have a whole chapter 49 in the book of Isaiah that talks about the essence of Judaism was to be a light to the nations. And yet, Isaiah, along with all the others, were killed by their own people because they didn't like that. So, we've got to kind of remember that covenant is extremely important. Now, any questions so far? Or did I just get you so confused? (laughs) No questions. Yes, yes. Uh, the question or the comment there is, <clears throat> is this where the idea that if a uh, Jewish person stepped out of Originally, it was within their own tribe, but then that fell apart in the Babylonian captivity. But even when they returned, they made themselves an exclusive community rather than going out and being a light to the nations. And if you fell away or married somebody outside your tribe or the Jewish community, you were, in essence, excommunicating yourself from the rest of the community 
And in many cases, you were just kind of cut off as if you were dead. And that has existed uh, even up to current times, you might say. If a Jewish person uh, marries a Gentile, and God forbid a Catholic, uh, they are often cut off. And you find that not so much here in the West Coast, but in uh, New York and New England, uh, all of the East Coast Jewish people are much more uh, strict and orthodox than they are out here. I, I found that a great deal when I spent a lot of time in the East Coast. Yes, Howard? They were punished, yes, over and over and over and over, you might say. Uh, down through the ages, God would try to bring them back. But why did he keep trying? You know, most of us would give up after a few attempts uh, in being rejected. But you've got to understand, this infinite love of God overrides all of the uh, sins of mankind. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that we might have life. Alright? I'm quoting from John's Gospel, chapter 3. Yes? Yeah, but he couldn't, uh, he couldn't stop giving Well, you're right. His plan was thought out long before creation. And Howard gets into, he's reading my mind, because (laughs) that's about a little scary at times. That's because that was our next topic, you might say. (laughs) Yeah. As part of the idea of partners, okay, we can see, uh, and I want to get into the subject of prefiguring. Throughout the Old Testament, there are certain incidents. Well, i got to even start back before that. In covenants, the covenant that God made with Abraham and then redo, renewed down through the ages was a covenant that was earthbound. It was everything involving humanity and earthly things. So, even though God knew that eventually it would shift from earthly things to spiritual things, the people at that time of Abraham and David and Moses, etc., would not have understood So a lot of the things in the Old Testament are things that are prefigured or refer to things that would happen later on. As I mentioned last week, 
St. Augustine says that the New Testament is buried in the Old Testament or within the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is fulfilled in and with the, throughout the New Testament. Does that make sense? All right. One of the things that we have to look at is the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. So if you want to go back to the book of Genesis, Now, over the years, I've been I've been uh, asked, well, why would can God condemn mankind for eating an apple? <laughs> First of all, the word apple is not mentioned in, in here, you know, uh, and it. <laughs> Whether it was an apple or an orange or banana makes no difference. The idea is that mankind disobeyed a direct command of God. Uh, That is what the story is trying to promote. Man's disobedience, whether it was an apple or anything else. God put boundaries on mankind as we talked about last week and mankind disobeyed. Alright. So it says Alright, it's the last part of chapter 2 the book of Genesis chapter 2 okay it says <clears throat> Starting with verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner for him. So the Lord formed out of the ground various wild animals, etc., etc. Alright. The Lord, uh, the man gave names, uh, to all the cattle, all the birds, the air, all the wild animals, but none proved to be suitable for, uh, partner for man. Again, the word partner. So the Lord cast uh, a deep sleep on man, and while he was asleep, he took one uh, one of his ribs and closed it up, uh, its place with flesh. The Lord God then built up into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man. And when he brought her to the man, the man said, This is one at last, his bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, this one shall be called woman. Now, kind of keep that in mind because the word woman is important later on. For out of her man, uh, out of her man, this one has been taken. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. And the two of them become one flesh because of the covenant God made between them. The man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame because they were still pure. Naked in this particular case has nothing to do with clothing. It has to do with purity. 
Now the serpent was the most cunning of the, all the animals that the Lord God made. The serpent asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees of the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it, lest you die. Now, in this case, lest you die means spiritual death, not physical death. But they did not understand that at that time. But the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know what is good and what is bad. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. This is, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and made loincloths for themselves. When they heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, hmm, can you imagine the breezy time with those leaves? <laughs> those, <laughs> the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? You have eaten then from the tree for which I had forbidden you to eat. The man replied, The woman who you put here. <laughs> hey? Always the woman's fault. Yeah. The woman who you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, so I ate it. The Lord God then asked the woman, why did you do such a thing? The woman answered, the serpent tricked me into it, so I ate it. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. On your belly shall you crawl, and dirt shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. Now, the woman in this case is not he, it is a future woman. All right. So that is what you got to start thinking about because this is the first time that we have this idea of prefiguring. All right. Or a reference now being made to something that won't be fulfilled until a future time. <clears throat> And the offspring, of course, of the woman is the same thing. I will put in, 
intensity of the pangs of your childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall be your master. To the man he said, well, to the man he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I had forbidden you, cursed be the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat it, uh, its yield all the days of your life. Thorns that you remember, the reason that this is important is that because up till this point in time, God gave them everything that they would need. It, it is a uh, metaphor, you might say, for heaven. Everything was perfect. Everything was given to them. They had no needs. They had no problems. They had no troubles of any kind. Everything was perfect. This is heaven. Okay. And yet, because they were human, they fell out of, first out of curiosity, and then the desire to do their own thing, you might say. By the sweat of your face shall you get bread to eat until you return to the ground from which you were taken. For you are dirt, and dirt you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she became the mother of all the living. And for the man and his wife, which he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, see, this man has become like one of us knowing what is good and what is bad. And therefore, he must uh, not be allowed to put out his hand to take fruit from the tree of life also. And thus, in other words, he can't stay in the garden of Eden. Eden. The Lord God therefore banished him from the garden of Eden to take the ground from which he had, uh, which he had been taken where he expelled the man, he settled him east of the Garden of Eden, and he stationed the cherubim, an angel with fiery uh, sword, and the fiery <laughs> revolving sword to guard the way uh, to the tree of life. In other words, because, because mankind sinned, and God was perfect. God and mankind could not exist, coexist together. This is the New American Catholic Study Bible. Yeah, the the words the, the words are different than Howard. Yes, yes. In a, in a way, it is a covenant. Yes. Uh -huh. The thing is, they they had to sep he had to separate himself. So the whole idea of the banishment, and some people will say, well, you know, kick him out, kick him out of the garden just because they ate the apple. No, no. It was 
God had to separate himself from sinful mankind. So he put mankind out of the garden to sort of fend for themselves. Not entirely, because we'll see if we went on uh, reading later <laughs> that he uh, made clothes for them and so forth and so on. All right. But the whole idea here is that there was a pig prefiguring of something within the context of what we just read. The whole idea of the uh, conversation between God and the serpent tells us a great deal about God himself. That's another one of those words that you can't... Uh, no, no. Um, it's more like a, a barrier. Okay? Yeah, that you can't get through. That's right. It's a barrier that is insurmountable uh, under the present circumstances. Okay. All right. Uh, so... All of that really revolves also around the fact that God gave man free will, and then because He wants to keep, He wants people to come to Him and listen to Him, but He gave them that free will, so they're always making the decisions of whether they're going to do that or going to listen to Him, and that was probably the whole thing with the tree and the whole thing. Yeah, well, that's right. As we talked about free will. Uh, Howard didn't like my answer, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I gotta go. <laughs> don't arrest, don't all of you leave. You know. uh, we still have a movie. No, the whole idea here is, as Joe pointed out, and we talked about last week, free will. Free will is part of the great gift that God has given us. Is that bad or good? <laughs> well, depends on how you use it. See? Yeah. Uh, the whole idea, if we did not have free will, we would be like robots or puppets or puppy dogs. You know, uh, The thing is, part of God's love is shown to us in the gift of free will. But free will has consequences. It allows us to make choices, and God has put up this whole idea, you know, just like he gave uh, Adam and Eve here a boundary. And if you cross that boundary, then you've got to bear the consequences. So the consequence in this case was they were put out of the Garden of Eden having to fend for themselves. But we have this whole idea here of a promise, in a way, a covenant, a promise that there would be a resolution to this problem of the banishment, of the whole idea of going against or choosing the wrong things out of free will. This whole promise of a woman and her child. Now, we know, because of 
being Catholic and the experience of 2,000 years of understanding and reading Gospels and all of the uh, psychology that comes from the Gospels, that there is to be, or there was, a woman who would, with her son, be a major player, a major partner in this whole idea of God's plan of salvation to rectify or to eventually cure this problem. All right. The problem of the banishment. The whole idea is that the gates of heaven or the gates of Eden, you might say, same thing, uh, were closed and protected by the angel with the fiery sword, etc. Okay. Those things are, you know, picture words, you might say, or that or word pictures. Uh, because the people of the Old Testament weren't aware of all of the theology uh, that we are privileged to have uh, coming down through the centuries. I want to stop here, even though I don't feel that I've completely covered all of the subjects, because I want to show this DVD, um, if I can start it, and then discuss it after, because it falls right in line with what we are talking about. All right. Uh, any important questions that you want to get out of your, over your, yes, Argus, I think. Ark of the Covenant? No. No. They feel that it was lost in the Babylonian captivity, uh, or the, you know, the Battle of, of Babylon, and no. Uh, there are a few, you know, that still think about it, like the Indiana Jones uh, <laughs> comment here. You know, that raised a lot of, of questions, and it brought back a lot of memories of, for people who would uh, like to have it come back. But, no, as a rule, they don't. No. Okay. Let's end, let's end with the prayer, and we'll do it rather quickly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death.